In the darkness, as thunder clapped overhead, the two men wrestled in the mud. Israeli spy Peter Malkin had tackled Ricardo Clement to the ground and was struggling to grab his throat as the Argentinian man fought desperately. Suddenly, Peter Malkin's hand slipped, and Clement let out a blood-curdling cry for help. Immediately, two other Israeli agents were on top of the men, grabbed a hold of Clement, and shoved him into their car. They pushed him to the floor, covered him with a blanket, and promised to shoot him if he said a word. The car sped off, but quickly slowed down to not attract attention. The men breathed heavily, and then had another moment of panic. Had anybody heard the screaming? Were the police called? And where was the backup vehicle? It was supposed to be right behind them. Had they been caught? In a moment, the second car pulled alongside and each gave the other a thumbs up. They settled in for a long, intense drive back to their safe house in Buenos Aires, stopping twice to change the license plates on the cars in case anyone was following them. One of the Israeli agents, Zvi Aharoni, who had been following Clement for weeks, remembered the drive. And after we drove maybe less than half a mile, or maybe a mile, not more than three minutes, I heard him saying in very clear language, very clear, very good German, Ich habe mich schon in mein Schicksal ergeben, which means in English, I'm already resigned to my fate. Then this was a very important indication. I knew that this is our man. He is German, he's not dead, he's not unconscious, and he's got something on his conscience. He's made up with his, with his fate. Arriving at the safe house, the team quickly propelled their captive, now blindfolded, into a small room. They stood around as the team doctor stripped Clement and checked him over for identifying marks. There were reports that, years ago, the Americans had found an SS officer's tattoo on him. But now there was just a nasty scar, although it looked like the kind of scar that would come from removing a tattoo. It was yet another confirmation. All the while, Zvia Haroni, the interrogator, fired questions at the captive. Asked him, what's your name? He said, Ricardo Clement. Asked him, what's your number in the SS, SS number? Give me the correct number. What's your number in the party, NSDAP? Give me the correct number. I said, what's your date of birth? And he gave me the correct date, 19 of March, 1906. That was a very hopeful sign. And then I asked him, what was your name at birth? He said, Adolf Eichmann. Even though they already knew it, the Israeli team was stunned. They had really done it. They had captured Adolf Eichmann, architect of the Final Solution, murderer of millions of Jews. Word was sent back to Israel by code. The typewriter is okay. Golda Meir, the foreign minister, and David Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, were informed that Eichmann was in Israeli hands. Still, the team tempered their excitement. They still had to get him to Israel. Welcome back to our mini-series on the capture of Adolf Eichmann. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the 10 days that Eichmann spent as a captive and how the Israelis managed to secretly smuggle him out of Argentina and to Israel. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. 
Strapped to the bed in a 10 foot by 12 foot room on the second floor, handcuffed, blindfolded, and wearing pajamas, Eichmann was asked if he knew what was going on. Yes, he said. I know that you are Israelis. I knew immediately. It was May 11th, 1960. But now came the hard part. Peter Malkin, the agent who tackled Eichmann, recalled that we were totally isolated and so even more subject than usual in undercover situations to wild speculation and outright paranoia. Living behind blackout curtains in our sprawling, out-of-season villa, the mind played tricks. Who was out there hunting for us? Were they getting closer? How in the hell were we ever going to get out? Above all, it was the sense of powerlessness, the inability to take constructive action, that was so unsettling. For highly trained operatives, men of action, they had to do what did not come naturally, hunker down and wait for their escape. It would take 10 days. In the meantime, all were forbidden from talking to Eichmann except for Zvi Aharoni, the interrogator. The Israelis wanted two things from Eichmann. The first was the whereabouts of Joseph Mengele. Mengele was the infamous angel of death, the doctor at Auschwitz, who not only selected which people would live or die, but also conducted horrible experiments on people, especially children. He, too, was known to have escaped to Argentina, but managed to live even more below the radar than Eichmann. Isser Harel, the head of the Israeli Mossad, had contemplated staging a second, simultaneous operation to the capture of Eichmann. Once they had Mengele's whereabouts from Eichmann, the team would grab him, too. But Eichmann insisted that he had no idea where Mengele was. It was probably a half-truth. He probably didn't know, but he certainly knew of people who did know. In the end, he never provided whatever information he knew, and the Israelis never caught Mengele. The second thing the interrogator wanted was for Eichmann to sign a letter stating that he understood his situation and was willing to travel to Israel to stand trial. Israel's attorney general had thought it important for legal reasons for Israel to have this. It provided a veneer of justification for Israel, which hadn't existed during the time period of Eichmann's crimes. I mean, look, they kidnapped him, no doubt about it. But if he signed the letter, he couldn't claim afterwards that he had been drugged up and coerced. But here again, Eichmann refused to help. He was willing to stand trial, he said, but only in Germany in front of his fellow Germans. He would never agree to go to Israel. And so the team settled into their tense existence, each man taking shifts to watch Eichmann 24 hours a day. Peter Malkin found himself simultaneously fascinated and repulsed by him. I was seized by powerful feelings of deep loathing and contempt, he wrote. I had expected more of this most honored representative of the master race. At the very least, I thought there would be bearing, dignity, pride. Stripped of power, Eichmann seemed a classic weakling, lacking the character even to accept his fate. But oddly, for the same reason, he engaged my curiosity far more than I expected. After all, Adolf Eichmann was a human being, someone who walked and talked and breathed exactly as I did. So one way, I looked in as a monster, because everybody said he is a monster. But when I saw him, it was a man walking. It was not a monster. A real man is walking like me and you, and not nothing special. In the Book of Esther, which reports events that perhaps took place in Persia in the 4th century BCE, the Jewish Queen Esther confronts Haman, who intended to massacre all the Jews of the realm. 
Not since then had a Jew ever been alone in a room with the intended murderer of his people. It was a role reversal nearly unique in Jewish history, and Peter Malkin found the enforced silence unbearable. How did it happen, he asked Eichmann. How did you come to do what you did? Blindfolded and handcuffed to the bed, Eichmann responded, It was a job I had. I had a job to do. Malkin told him about his sister, Fruma, and her family, who had been murdered in the camps. My sister's boy, my favorite playmate, he said. He was just your son's age, also blonde and blue-eyed, like your son. And you killed him. Yes, said Eichmann, but he was Jewish, wasn't he? Malkin was astonished by these answers. He later wrote that Eichmann was pitiless, seemingly unaware anything wrong had been done at all, certainly taking no responsibility for it. I had never, Malkin wrote, been through anything more frustrating, more infuriating. Eli, did you get an answer on your question why he did it? The answer is no. And I don't think that even Eichmann knew the answer. Because in a way, I identity, uh, he identity, identified himself, identified. identified himself so much with the Führer with the system that he couldn't get out of it. And yet, Eichmann insisted that he was no anti-Semite. He told Malkin, Perhaps to you it seems as if I hate Jews. I don't. I was never an anti-Semite. I have always been fond of Jews. I had Jewish friends. Eichmann told Malkin that he had been in Haifa in the 1930s, that he studied Judaism, that he even spoke a smattering of Hebrew. He could even recite the Shema, the most holiest prayer in Judaism. Malkin was astonished by all this. He had hoped that, perhaps given the circumstances, Eichmann would allow a trace of real sorrow, a little regret, even the idea that perhaps the Fuhrer wasn't infallible after all. But never once, Malkin wrote, did the man convey anything but the feeling that everything he had done was absolutely appropriate. Not nice, necessarily, or even reasonable, but absolutely correct in context. There was a job to do, and he did it. He shouldn't be blamed for the circumstances he had claimed to Malkin, for he had no responsibility. He did his job, and he did it very well. It was orders, nothing more. As they hunkered down in the safe house, bereft of news from the outside world, the Israeli team wondered what was happening. Was there a manhunt underway? How had Eichmann's family responded? The Israelis guessed that Eichmann's wife Vera and her adult children wouldn't raise the alarm. They were correct. Although Argentina was generally welcoming to former Nazis, the Eichmanns weren't excited about completely blowing their cover, so they didn't inform the police. They also didn't find too much help from their Nazi network. Once word got out that Eichmann had gone missing, everyone assumed it was the Israelis. No one wanted to be the next guy to get grabbed, or for all they knew, executed in a ditch somewhere. So instead of initiating a huge manhunt, most of his fellow travelers ran for cover. The Eichmann family scoured the hospitals and morgues, but of course found nothing. The family did manage to recruit a group of local fascists to fan out across the city and investigate. But although the Hollywood movies all show close calls, nothing like that ever happened. 
Still, the Israelis couldn't know all this, and they were increasingly anxious about getting out of there. Isser Harel, the head of the Mossad who was on the ground in Buenos Aires, he'd been working on an exit for weeks. There were really only two options. Overland wasn't going to work. It would take way too long to drive Eichmann across the nearest border. Way too much risk in getting stopped at a checkpoint or by the police at some point. Same with the train. He would be forced to interact with other people, giving him too much chance to escape. So that left boat or airplane. The problem with a boat is that to sail from Buenos Aires to Israel would take weeks at sea. Also way too long. So a plane was the best option. But of course, they couldn't just roll up at the airport and buy a ticket for a commercial flight. They needed their own jet, but one that wouldn't raise suspicions. If the Argentinian authorities knew Eichmann had gone missing, and two seconds later a group of Israelis chartered a private jet to leave the country, well, that wouldn't be too hard to put together. But as luck would have it, Argentina's 150th anniversary of independence was just around the corner. Israel and Argentina had good relations. What if Israel sent a diplomatic delegation to join the festivities? Israel's national airline, El Al, didn't have any regular flights to Argentina, so what if they made this one the inaugural one? That would give them a non-commercial but legit airplane from which to make their escape. Since it was a diplomatic flight, only Israelis would be on board. They could disguise Eichmann as one of their own and be out of there and back in Israel before anyone caught on. It was a good plan. It was also 10 days away. The Mossad and Shin Bet agents holding Eichmann would just have to hunker down and wait. Peter Malkin and the rest of the team had trouble reconciling the pathetic captive in front of them with the ultra-confident architect of the final solution. When they took him to the bathroom, he had asked permission to wipe. He was constantly asking if they were going to kill him, if they were going to harm his family. Issa Harel later remembered viewing Eichmann with derision. The sight of that miserable runt who had lost every vestige of his former superiority and arrogance the moment he was stripped of his uniform and powers of authority gave us a feeling of insult and profound scorn. Was this the personification of evil? Was this the tool used by a diabolic government? This non-entity, devoid of human dignity and pride, was this the messenger of death for six million Jews, he asked? Everyone was incredulous. But at the same time, Eichmann was steadfast in his refusal to sign the document declaring his willingness to stand trial in Israel. For everyone locked inside the safe house, morale was low and tension was high. They were bored and on edge. An orthodox female agent was brought in from Israel to straighten up appearances in the all-male enclave. Her job was to be seen in the neighborhood and in and around the house to ward off any suspicions. It's unclear who exactly she was. Some stories say she was Peter Malkin's girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, and her name changes in every account. But she, too, quickly succumbed to the morose atmosphere. She hated cooking for Eichmann, hated touching anything that he had touched, hated sleeping in the same house where he, too, was sleeping. She, like the other agents, had lost family members in the Holocaust. Meanwhile, Peter Malkin and Eichmann continued their clandestine conversations. For days, Eichmann had remained blindfolded and handcuffed to the bed. Finally, Malkin asked Eichmann if he would like a glass of wine. He retrieved a bottle as well as a record player belonging to one of the other Mossad agents. 
He put on music, poured the wine, and even took off Eichmann's blindfold, allowing the prisoner to relax for the first time in days. You should sign the paper, Peter Malkin told him. Go to Israel. But Eichmann protested that he could only be tried by his fellow Germans. Look, said Malkin, signing that statement will be your declaration to the world that you are prepared to defend your behavior, as you've defended it to me. Over wine, music, and cigarettes, Eichmann finally relented. I, the undersigned, Adolf Eichmann, hereby declare of my own free will that since my true identity has become known, I realize the futility of trying to continue to flee justice. I declare myself ready to travel to Israel and to stand trial before a competent court. It is clearly understood that I shall be provided with legal counsel, and I myself will endeavor to clarify the facts of my years of service in Germany so that future generations may receive a true picture of those events. I am making this statement of my own free will. I have been promised nothing and no threats have been made against me. A desire at long last to find repose for my soul. Malkin later wrote that he thought that for Eichmann, realizing he was doomed, for him a show trial in Jerusalem represented an irresistible opportunity, not only to once again be a figure of renown, but to get some credit for what he had done, as he had so persistently sought credit from me. If he had to die, why not as a martyr to the causes, leaving a public legacy for his children and Nazi sympathizers everywhere? With the legal document in hand, the only thing left to do now was get him and everyone else out of Argentina. The El Al Bristol Britannia airplane touched down in Buenos Aires carrying a full flight crew and several diplomats, including Israel's heavy hitter, Abba Ibn. Formerly ambassador to the United States and the United Nations, Abba Ibn was one of the most recognizable Israelis in the world, a clear diplomatic sign of the high regard Israel had for Argentina's 150th anniversary. Abba Ibn, the El Al pilot, and just a few other people knew the real purpose of the mission, and who their extra passenger was supposed to be on the way home. The rest of the flight crew had been carefully chosen and investigated by the Mossad. Preparations had been meticulous. Exactly where at the airport the plane would park, for instance, away from the terminal and near a side gate to allow the Israelis to approach the plane without going to the main entrance. A flight plan had been laid out to ensure the plane would get as far away from Argentinian airspace as quickly as possible. Extra uniforms were secretly rounded up. On the morning of May 20th, 1960, on the other side of Buenos Aires, a middle-aged Israeli man named Zev Zikroni appeared in the emergency room. He had just been in a minor car accident, he said, but he wasn't feeling very well. His symptoms looked like a concussion. He was placed under observation. Several hours later, recuperated and with no further signs of distress, he was released. Luckily for Zikroni, he didn't have a concussion, nor had he actually been in a car accident. Instead, he had lent his name to a false ID to be used by one Adolf Eichmann, Ricardo Clement, who would take his name, put on an El Al uniform, and blend in with the Israeli flight crew boarding the diplomatic flight home. Eichmann as Zikroni would be drugged up too. In case they were stopped and questioned by the police or airport security, the Israelis would say that Eichmann, Zikroni, had been in a car accident and was under the influence of drugs from the concussion. 
If the police called the hospital and checked out the story, the Argentinian doctors, none the wiser of course, would certainly confirm that an Israeli named Zichroni had been in earlier and released. You gotta give it to him. Absolutely brilliant. The Israelis headed towards the airport in their cars with fake diplomatic plates, waved through the checkpoint, they simply drove up to the El Al plane, half carried Eichmann aboard, spread out through the cabin, turned off all the lights, and took off two hours ahead of schedule, just in case anyone tried to stop the flight. The plane banked a turn and headed out across the Atlantic in the direction of Israel. Once it cleared Argentinian airspace, the legitimate air crew were told who their mysterious passenger was. One crew member, with a tattooed number from Auschwitz on his arm, walked to the back of the plane, closed the bathroom door, and cried. Peter Malkin and several agents stayed behind to clean up the safe house and wrap up any loose ends. It took him and his colleagues several weeks to work their way home, through Chile and Brazil. When he arrived in Israel, he swore up and down that he had been on a business trip in Paris, where there wasn't much coverage of the Eichmann capture and he didn't really know many details. Malkin kept absolute silence on the matter. For a long time, he broke the secret only once. As his mother lay dying in a hospital room, Peter visited her in the early morning. She seemed asleep, but he whispered in her ear, Mama, he said, I want to tell you something. I'm the one who captured Eichmann. Fruma has been avenged, for it was I, her brother, who captured him. His mother slowly opened her eyes. Yes, she said, I understand. Eichmann was grabbed on May 11th and landed in Israel on the 22nd. The next day, Ben-Gurion announced that he would be making an emergency statement to the nation. Climbing the podium at the Knesset on May 23rd, Ben-Gurion told a stunned country, I have to inform the Knesset that a short while ago, the Israeli security services captured one of the greatest Nazi criminals, Adolf Eichmann, who together with the Nazi leaders was responsible for what was termed the final solution to the Jewish problem, that is, the destruction of six million European Jews. Eichmann is already in detention in Israel and will soon be put on trial here under the Nazi and Nazi collaborators punishment law, 1950. The operation to capture Eichmann was over. Now the government prepared for what would surely be a sensational and somber affair. It would change Israeli culture and go down as one of the most remarkable trials of the 20th century. I'll be releasing those episodes later this week. Today's music was Chote Hanevua, Olga Avigail, and Tango Attack, and the Steve Miller Band, an eclectic mix. Keep a lookout for the next episodes. Lehitraot, see you later. <laughs>